0: please to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, if you're using a blue Bible, it's page 1044. Romans 7 will be 1 through 6 today. Romans chapter 7, 1 through 6. Next week, we're going to cover Romans 7, verses 7 through 12. So today is Romans 7, 1 through 6. Next week is Romans 7, 7 through 12. Please read next week's passage at home this week. Dig into it. Do a little homework. Become familiar with it. In preparation for next Sunday, if you would. So I made a brand new observation this morning about this passage that I have not made before. And I've been studying this passage for many weeks. Back at the end of chapter 5, we saw that Paul was beginning a discussion on the distinction between grace and law. The distinction between grace and law. And I knew that. But it just occurred to me this morning that chapter 6, the focus was on the grace of God. Particularly the grace of God in our sanctification, in us growing up in the Lord. This morning, I saw that chapter 7, and I can't believe I didn't see this earlier, but chapter 7 is about the law of God. <coughs> And its place in our sanctification, or actually more correctly, its lack of a place in our sanctification. And so, chapter six and seven, it's a lot about how we grow in Christ. That's our sanctification. Chapter six is about the grace of God, how by God's grace we are empowered to put sin to death. And to live a life that pleases and honors God. And then chapter 7. Is about the law of God. And how it cannot sanctify us. And what I mean by that. Is that it is not the power of our sanctification. The law of God. The Ten Commandments in particular. Does have a place in our life today as Christians. But it is not what Powers us and gives us strength to walk with God each day, and so Paul 's going to be unpacking that all throughout chapter seven. we 're going to spend at least three weeks in chapter seven, possibly four, so I haven't decided for sure yet. So with all that being said, let 's read uh, chapter seven verses one through six. Follow along with me, please. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Let's dive into it. Let's meditate on it. Let's ponder it. Take a few minutes to read it to yourself and then we'll discuss it. Let's do this. Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not, or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. I told you earlier that a focus of chapter 6 is on the grace of God and the relationship of the grace of God to the Christian today. In this life for the purpose of us walking with God and growing to be more like God. And I told you that chapter 7 is about the law of God. And particularly what the law of God cannot do for us. Now that we are in Christ. Now there are certainly things that it does do for us. But we're going to learn today something that the law of God does not do and cannot do. Was not designed to do for us. But sometimes we as Christians, and and, and I'm sure that somebody in here is guilty of this, we as Christians can expect the law to do something for us that it was never designed to do. And because of that, we're either in complete and total despair, or we are puffed up with incredible pride. So just hear me say that. I'll be unpacking that. But there's another link. To chapter 6 that I want to point out. Paul, although he is treating a different idea than he was in chapter 6, there is still a lot of overlap. He had been earlier in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Paul's been talking about justification by faith. If you want to be made right with God, that's free. You can't do anything to be righteous, but Jesus can give you his righteousness. You can't achieve it. Or earn it. Being right with God It's not like a paycheck. It's more like a Christmas present. And so Paul was anticipating the charge that... Are you trying to say that I don't have to do anything to be right with God? Or are you trying to say that I don't have to obey God in order to have a relationship with God? Paul was anticipating that. He was ready for that. And he tackles that idea in chapter 6. And particularly in chapter 6 verse 15. Look at that with me. Romans 6:15. He says, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? I believe in our passage today, Paul is still answering that question. And last week we covered one answer. Last week he said, no, we aren't slaves to sin anymore. So we don't have to do what sin says. But now that we're Christians, we have a new master. We have God and we are slaves to God. We're no longer slaves to sin. Well, this week, Paul uses a different analogy or a different metaphor. He speaks of marriage in our relationship to God's law. And he uses this idea of Marriage to teach us why we should not keep on sinning while we're a Christian. And he also uses marriage to show us that it is an actual impossibility to be a Christian who just goes on sinning with no life change at all. So in chapter 7, all of the chapter... The word law appears 23 times. 23 times. Prior to this, in the first six chapters, it appears less than seven times on average. So in chapter 7, it's there 23 times. Prior to this, on average, it appears less than seven times. And in chapter 2 of Romans, the word law actually appears 19 times. But in chapter 2, it's talking about the law of God and the unbeliever. In chapter 7, it's talking about the law of God and the believer. So after chapter 7, the word law appears less than twice per chapter on average. So the word law, the topic of law, appears less than twice for each chapter. And in some chapters, this word law does not appear at all. So there in verse one, do you not know, brothers? There's a link, I believe, to chapter six, verse 15 to that question. Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And he says this, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So the people that he's writing to are folks that have some familiarity with the Jewish law. Now, obviously, Jewish law, Ten Commandments, you know, all that stuff. The Jews knew that really, really well. But there is a lot of reasons to understand that the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish nation, knew things about the command of God. And so I won't unpack all that today, but we have to recognize that... Paul was speaking to all types of Christians, Jews and non-Jews alike, and they understood the law of God. And so I, I will tell you that for the first seven to eight years of my Christian life, I thought that the law of God was not even worth learning about or talking about as a Christian. You just love God. That's all you're supposed to do, not now. You know, the loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength is the greatest commandment. And it's greater than any of the Ten Commandments. There's no doubt about that. But that is a summary of the commands. So we should not neglect the law of God for so many reasons. And I just had this really immature understanding of the Old Testament. And I thought that, you know, that's not for us today. And I remember... Going into Old Testament survey class as a sophomore at Bible college, and after two days of that, I was broken because my professor just proved to me how much the Old Testament and how much the law of God has to do for us today as Christians. How important it is to have a proper understanding of the law of God. You know, if you lean more conservatively, politically speaking, you know, as an American, then then you probably, for for conservatives, for most of us, and and myself included in that, you know, we we understand that the founding of our nation is important if we're gonna understand like what our nation should be doing today. And, And if that's where you are, you know, that kind of thing's important for you. And it seems like there's a lot of folks who are trying to undo that information and erase that knowledge from present day. And as that is done, You know, we kind of if we forget where we've come from, if we forget what is behind us, then we're not going to understand where we are today or what we should be doing today. Well, here in Romans 7, he's saying, you all know the law of God, the law of God that was given to Moses many centuries before this was written, probably around 1400 years before this was written. Paul is saying, You all know this. He goes on to say at the end of verse 1 that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. See that word binding? It has to do with dominion, it has to do with something being the Lord. Okay, the the Greek word for the Lord Jesus, that word Lord is kurios. Well, this word, binding, is kurio. It's a verb instead of a noun. So this word binding has to do with lordship and dominion. So he's saying here at the end of verse 1 that the law is binding only as long as you live. You know. My great-grandparents who have been gone for a really long time aren't going to get arrested for speeding, are they? A dead person cannot break the law of God. It's a very simple idea. Hold on to that. There's a reason I mentioned that. It'll make more sense in a little bit. So we get to verses 2 and 3. And Paul brings out a simple analogy of marriage. Basic things about marriage that any American, hopefully, any American would understand. And he says this. He talks about a married woman. And he says a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That's basic, right? That's easy, right? If a spouse dies, if a lady's husband dies, then she can get remarried, and that is perfectly appropriate. It happens often. She is no longer bound by the law to stay faithful to that husband. Verse 3. If she goes out and she lives with another man, what's she going to be? She'll be an adulteress. Because she belongs to someone else. But she's also allowing herself to belong to another. When she's only supposed to belong to one. So verse 3, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's freed. Free from the law. That means she's not connected. Like she doesn't, like she can go out and belong to someone else, right? So basic, so simple. She is free from the law of marriage that keeps her connected to that one that she formerly Belong to. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. What's Paul's point here? Well, he's saying if your spouse dies, you're dead to him. Now, of course, you have memories, all that stuff. But you're no longer obligated to live like you're married to him if he's dead. You can belong to another if you would like. So when your husband dies, you are dead to him. And now you can belong to someone else. We get to verse 4, and this becomes very, very clear. Look at verse 4 with me. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may bear fruit for God. All right, we're dead to the law. Likewise, my brothers. It's very obvious. He's building on what he just said about marriage. Likewise, my brothers. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So we're dead to the law. What does that mean? That law is like the lady's dead husband. Recall what we looked at in chapter 6, verse 2. It said that we are dead to sin. Here it's saying we're dead to the law, we're dead to all these commands of God. We no longer belong to that list of rules. So what does it mean that we're dead to sin? I shared with you a few weeks ago that it would be like selling your house to someone else and they move in. But then you want to go back and live there every now and then and enjoy the best parts of it. But like you don't want responsibility for it. You don't want to have to pay the mortgage and you don't want to have to keep it clean or keep it up. You no longer get to enjoy it when you sell the home. You're no longer attached to it. You're no longer bound to it. And in the same way, when we're dead to sin or when we're dead to the law, it means sin is not our master. It means that the law of God is not over us. So do y'all see, as I'm telling you, the law of God is not over us as Christians? Do you see where that thought pattern comes in? Like, does that mean I get to do whatever I want? It's it's a logical conclusion to kind of come to. When you just think about it really quickly. But Paul is answering that question. He's been answering that in chapter 6, and I believe he's answering it here. The truth is, when we were saved, we died to sin, we died to the power of it, and we died to the law, and we also died to its curse. And now we have a new nature. We possess the righteousness of God. Sin is no longer king over us as Christians. And the law of God is no longer king over us as Christians. But we have a new Lord. We have a new king. And his name is Jesus. His name is... Jesus, See, the law brings condemnation over us, does it not? You think about the law, you shall not lie. You're a liar. You've done it at some point in your life. Every one of us have broken this command. And because of that, we are a guilty criminal. The law, the law of God says, "You shall not murder." And Jesus took that law, He took that command, and he says, "If you even get angry with someone and call them a fool, then you have murdered them in your heart." See, the law of God is not just us like doing that one single thing like murdering someone that other people can verify but that sin of murder can actually take place in our hearts. It takes place in my heart sometimes. In the sinful ways that I am occasionally think about others. And this is an awful and wicked thing in my soul that takes place from time to time, but it still does happen from time to time. Do I deserve to be condemned? For the sin in my heart. Do you deserve to be condemned for the sin in your heart? Absolutely. We should be. We should have a one way ticket straight to hell. But Christ. We are no longer under the power of sin. And we are no longer under the law of God. But we belong to another. Another. Do you see that in verse 4? We belong to another. This condemnation that comes from the law of God over us. It points out our guilt. It shows us what we deserve. But the curse and the condemnation of the law of God over our souls is no more because we belong to Jesus and we have his righteousness in us. So there in verse four, it speaks of us belonging to another right there in the middle. You see that you have died to the law through the body of Christ. So what? So for what purpose? So that you may belong to another. This wording is almost identical to what we see at the end of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The wording in the original language is almost identical. Verse 4 is so closely and tightly linked to this talk of marriage in verses 2 and 3. And who is it that we belong to in verse 4? Well, it's Jesus, of course. It says... Him who has been raised from the dead. So you've died to the law. You've died to your old husband. You no longer belong to that guy. But you got a new husband. And this new husband is Jesus. And He treats you a whole lot better than how the commands of God condemned you because you were never good enough. Y'all ever lived? And I ain't even talking about the person you're married to. I, I can talk about a roommate. I'm talking about a sibling. Maybe it's one of your parents. Maybe it was a boss. Have you ever lived with someone where no matter what you did, it was never, ever good enough? Even on your best day, it wasn't good enough. You ever had someone like that in your life? we all have it may have been someone super close to us it may have been you know someone not super close but it still affected us well in Christ you don't belong to that guy anymore you belong to Jesus and let me tell you what there's nobody like him this second marriage that this new way of life is nothing Like your old way of life before you became a Christian. So what is the key to living the Christian life? What is the key to bearing fruit for God, like what we see there at the end of verse four? Y'all, we need to recognize that this Christian life isn't about obeying a list of rules. It's not about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that don't do this, don't do that. It's not a list of 3,000 things that you can't do today. This Christian life is about who you get to be with. It's about relationship. And his name is Jesus. Now, does Jesus have rules? Absolutely. But that is not... I mean, mean, anyone, you hear me preach every week, I'm going to tell you what you better not do. Because there's commands in the Bible, right? But those commands are not disconnected from a Savior. And there is a Savior who knows that you've disobeyed all of those commands and He has rescued you from the mess you've made. And now He gives you power to obey those commands. See, Jesus... We don't have to clean ourselves up before we go to Jesus. We come to Jesus with all the filth of our sin and and wreck of our life. We come to Jesus with all that all over us. And he loves us enough to accept us as we are. But he loves us enough not to let us stay that way. You all, we are married to Christ as his people, as his church. Our Christian life is not first and foremost about what you better not do. But it is first and foremost about having Jesus in your life. And I want to tell you, if Jesus is in your life, then following those commands and rules ain't going to be no problem for you at all. Amen. If Jesus is in your life, then following those commands and rules that he has... It's going to be something that you want to do. When I was a young Christian, and I had some friends who kind of influenced me in this way. You know, there was this, this, and if you knew where I grew up in church and kind of how that was, you would understand where I'm coming from. And some of y'all, y'all are with me in this. But there was like religion, and then there was relationship. And those two things were opposed to each other. And the way I thought about it as an early Christian was religion. That was just all that stuff you have to do. That was just the ceremonies and all that stuff that at the time did not mean anything to me. It means something to me now. But at the church I was at, they weren't teaching me what those things meant. And so it just seemed like empty ritualism to me. And so religion just had to do with those rules. And we were missing out on the joy of Jesus. But this passage teaches us. That it is Jesus that we belong to. I wasn't really responding to religion. Because true religion is a good thing. I was responding to a... I was reacting against a negative and empty form of religion. I really would call it legalism. Where you just have to follow all these rules just right. You know, But then there were some rules that weren't even important at all. So... So I see in these verses when it has this emphasis of us belonging to Jesus, this emphasis of us belonging to another, it means that we primarily have a new relationship with God. And that should define us more than the list of rules that are real and that are present. And if Jesus defines who you are, If your relationship with God is first and foremost at the center of your attention, if you are seeking to love him, then the obedience part, although it is hard at times, it is possible and it is good and it's a life that is filled with joy. So continue to look at verse four with me, if you would. We've already talked about the belonging to another part, belonging to him who had been raised from the dead. For what purpose? Look at the end of verse 4. For what purpose? In order that we may bear fruit for God. This is the rest of our Christian life. This is the rest of our Christian life. Don't you hate it? When you worked really hard on that garden and the leaves are nice and green and beautiful, but that darn tomato plant doesn't give you a single stinking tomato? Okay. That's not the Christian life, okay? That is not the Christian life at all. That plant can look really, really good, but not produce anything worthwhile, right? That's not the Christian life that Paul is talking about here. He is talking about a Christian life that actually produces something that is more than just exterior, but something that nourishes the world, and blesses others and is good and enjoyable or delicious for others. Jesus saved you so that you would bear fruit. Did you know that? Jesus didn't save you just so you could have fire insurance. Jesus saved you so that you can do something good in this world today. Jesus in John fifteen sixteen, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So not only should you grow a tomato, but you should grow a tomato that sticks around for quite a long time. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, we are God's workmanship. In the Greek, that word actually means masterpiece. When's the last time you saw something that was a, you could describe as a masterpiece? Something that is very thoughtfully created, Something that was worked on and developed by someone who was very skilled at their profession or their art or their task. God says here that if you're in Christ, then you are the masterpiece of God. Just as an artist has a workmanship, just as a master architect can design an incredible structure. So God says that we, this is Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship or his masterpiece. But why? Why would God make us a masterpiece Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10 that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the whole point, going back to Romans 7, the whole point of Romans 7 verse 4 is that we belong to another so that we can bear fruit for God. If you don't belong to Jesus, you can't bear fruit for Jesus. Because you've got to have the life of Jesus in you in order to do the things that Jesus Does. So what type of fruit is in your life? Do you belong to Jesus? Think about your life and examine. What type of fruit is in your life? As you hear me ask that question, if you're wondering... Is there really any good fruit or not? Is this really okay or not? Like, am I really living my life the way I should? Is there anything positive coming out of my life? If you're wondering that, if there's no obvious good fruit in your life, then there's a chance that you might not be a Christian, even if you really think that you are. Verses like this call us to examine ourselves. And if we find that the things that the scriptures say about Christians are not true of us, then we need to ask that question, Am I a Christian? Or we can say, How does somebody become a Christian? And then start from there. Talk to me, talk to other folks of this church that you know or are familiar with the Word of God. And start asking the hard questions. and and, and go down that road. And as you do that, the Lord will meet you. And and you can live with assurance that you know God and that you belong to God. You can live with absolute assurance that that is true and real for you. So moving on to verse 5 and verse 6. In verse 5, it talks about our old relationship to God's law before we were a Christian. We've already covered that a little bit. In verse 6, it's talking about our new relationship to the law now that we are a Christian. So verses 5 and 6 are contrasting the non-Christian's relationship to the commands of God to the Christian's relationship and interaction with the commands of God. Let's look at verse 5. He describes our first marriage. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law... We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So it's talking about us before we became a Christian, while we were living in the flesh. It says our sinful passions. Yeah, I told you about some of my sinful passions earlier, right? That, that tendency I have every once in a while I get really angry at someone and to call them something in my heart that I should not call them. Okay, so, so I'm still battling with that even as, as, as a Christian. But the primary emphasis of this verse is that battle before we're a Christian. And we'll be unpacking this battle a lot in the next two to three weeks. Um, but verse 5 is talking about us before we became a Christian. It's talking about our sinful desires. And it says they are aroused by the law. What does that mean? Well, it might mean, it, 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 well, let, let's say it like this. What was your thing? What was your sin of choice that you enjoyed before you became a Christian? Did you just get kicks out of line to people to see how much you can fool them with? Did you just drink too much just because it was fun? Was it sexual sin? What type of sin was it before you were a Christian that you just loved to do? If someone came up to you and they told you don't do that thing, what would it make you do? It would make you want to do it. If I tell you don't think about the color pink, all of a sudden, every one of you just thought about the color pink. But if I wouldn't have told you not to do it, none of you in here would have been thinking about pink. So before we were a Christian... The commands of God would arouse our sinful passions. What does that mean? It means that it would get the sin inside of me excited. I can't do that. And you know what? That sounds like a lot of fun. So one of my kids was chasing one of your little kids. One of my bigger kids was chasing one of your little kids all around the sanctuary. About 15 minutes before service started the day. And that kid, he walked in this, the little kid, walked in that building just... Just as cool and calm as, as they could be. You know, just checking the place out, smiling at people, but they weren't saying a word. They were just walking real slow. Then all of a sudden, my big kid comes to your little kid. Right? And then, you know, do a little bit of this. Take a few steps towards them. What happened to that little kid? It started running around. It ran into you. It it got loud. To the point where I had to tell my kid, stop it. That kid's going to have to be calm in 10 minutes. Stop getting that kid excited. Okay? So my big kid was like the law, and your little kid was like the sinful passions in this verse. The law of God was getting... The sin inside of us as non-Christians excited. The big kid was getting the little kid excited. And it was making the little kid active. Well, before we were a Christian, when the law of God comes to us, when we thought about what we were not allowed to do, it made us want to do it. Y'all, that was our first marriage. That was our first marriage to the law. The native, corrupt, sinful passions that were in us were aroused by the law. Now, the rest of chapter 7 is going to be unpacking these ideas of verse 5 a lot more. And I want to tell you that it's good to know that Paul's view of the law here is very different from the Jewish view of the law. The popular Jewish view of that time was that the law would produce righteousness. And Paul says, no, the law actually produces more sin. Not only does it point sin out, but it actually, sin takes advantage of the law. And just creates more unrighteousness. So sin used the law to stir us up to evil. But now that we are no longer married to that law, as it was saying in verses 2, 3, and 4, and now that we are no longer under the law, as it said in verses 14 and 15 that we covered last week of chapter 6, now that we are no longer married to the law or under the law, we now belong to Christ. We did belong to the law, and sin would use the law to make more sin, When we belong to the law. But now we belong to Christ. And you know what? Sin can't use Christ to make us sin. Sin used the law to make us sin. But sin cannot use Christ to make us sin. We belong to the law. But now we belong to Jesus. And this Jesus, what has he done with sin? He's conquered it. He took the sin of all his people. He suffered the wrath and punishment of God, the anger of God at our sin. Jesus experienced all of that on the cross in those hours on that cross. Then 3 days later he came back to life. The law points out our sin, but our new husband, Jesus, he saves us from it. And that is good news. So we get to verse six, final verse. This is our new marriage. Now we're released from the law. We're released from that old husband. We've died to that which held us captive. That mean old husband. We were never good enough for those commands. We can never do everything right. Well, we don't belong to him anymore, verse 6 says. We're released from it. We've died to that old guy who held us captive. Our first husband only condemned us, it was not a good marriage. But Christ has set us free, verse 6 says. We belong to a new husband. Some of you may be familiar with Ephesians 5. It's one of Paul's clearest teachings in Scripture about marriage. Um, You know, what we saw in verses 2 or 3 of this chapter wasn't really to teach us how marriage worked, it was more of an analogy. But in Ephesians 5, it's actually a passage that teaches us about marriage. And he says this about husbands in that chapter that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her or make her holy. you all now that Christ is our husband? What does he do for us? What do good husbands do for their wives? A good husband makes their wife even more beautiful than she already is. And Christ is the perfect husband. He gives himself up for his bride that he may sanctify her or make her holy. And he does this by cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. So that and this is Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And what does how does Christ treat his bride? He makes her. He's going to present his bride in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. Christ, our husband, takes away our blemishes. He makes us holy. And beautiful. So we've died to the old husband. We belong to this new husband. For what reason? Look there in verse 6. So that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. See, the captivity is gone, but now there is freedom. There is freedom with our new husband, there is freedom with our new master. And look at how we serve we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. You've heard me already today talk about how all those commands are not the primary motivation in our Christian life, right? The old way of living before Christ was to try to live up to those demands and those commands of the written code, as it says there in verse 6. But now, how do we live? We live in the Spirit of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. See, the old way of the written code demands obedience. But it doesn't give us any power to actually obey. So it demands it, but it gives us no power. But Jesus Christ sends us His Spirit. The new way of the Spirit, as it says in verse 6. Jesus sends us his spirit so that we can follow the command. Jeremiah told us that this was going to happen way back, roughly 700 years before Paul wrote this. Jeremiah prophesied this. He said that God would write the law on our hearts. And now that the law of God is on our hearts, it's the very core of who we are. As a, when you got saved, did you all of a sudden have this desire to obey God that you had never had before? It's because the law of God was written on our hearts. See, when the law is written on our hearts, the law is in us. It is no longer over us. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. God goes on to say, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes or laws and be careful to obey my rules. Let me read that last verse again, Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-seven. God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I am going to cause you to walk in my statutes or laws, and be careful to obey my rules. See in Romans seven, six, Paul is saying there's a new way to live in the Spirit. And Ezekiel unpacks that hundreds of years before it happened. This spirit inside of us is not only going to make us want to obey the commands and law of God. But it's actually going to cause us to obey the command of God. See, you might look at the best Christian you know and be like, man, they're so super holy. I've always wanted to be like them. They're not like that because they're awesome or better than you. They're like that because they just quit trying and said, Spirit of God, I can't do it. Whatever you want to do, I'm open to it. Just do it right through me. That's why they're awesome. It's not because they're better than you but it's because they have let God's power work in them they are serving serving and living their life in the new way of the spirit instead of the old way of the written code so let me ask you speaking to those of you who are in Christ is this how you live your life do you live your life in the power of the holy spirit are you bearing good fruit for God this fruit, we, we refer to it, Paul refers to it as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He says there's love and there's joy and there's peace. He says when the Spirit's in you, there's patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. And faithfulness and self-control. See, when the Spirit of God is in us, that's the fruit that grows all around us. Are you letting God's Holy Spirit produce that fruit? Or are you just kind of trying to put joy on like a jacket? Because you're, you know you're supposed to be wearing Because it? it's really easy to try to put these things on and wear them like clothing that we take on and off. And that you know gets dirty and you throw it in the wash and you know, all that stuff. You, know, you put on a different one each day. This fruit is not something that we wear. It is something That grows in us as the spirit operates internally. All the externals, they aren't just externals. They come from a deep and lively just activity of the spirit of God in our hearts. Let me ask you, child of God, are you doing everything for God by yourself in your own strength? And you are continually frustrated that no matter what you do, it's not good enough. Do you live under constant condemnation that you're never good enough for God? I want to tell you repent of trying to be good. You will never be good enough. But let God's spirit inside of you do the work in you. At times, Christians need to repent of self sufficiency. We start with Christ in the Spirit. We knew He was enough, but now we're trying to be enough and there's nothing but failure. If you are a Christian, then Christ is your husband. You belong to Him. Are you living like that? And if you're here today and you are thinking about all these rules and you know you've never followed them enough and you're worried about what's going to happen to you in the future, you don't feel close to God, He is far from you. You're worried about hell as was taught in our catechism today. Do you feel the condemnation of the law upon you? Well, I want to tell you there is another that you can belong to. There is Christ. And Christ stands ready to save. He is a good master. He is a perfect husband. And I want to tell you that by His death on the cross... And by His resurrection, you can know Him. He stands ready to receive anybody who will come. And I tell you, there's nothing like belonging to Him. Let's take some time and pray. God has spoken to us in His Word.